Our theme this fall has, is uh, Jesus Discovered, and we're looking at Jesus from different uh, angles or aspects. We've talked about Jesus as a teacher. We've talked about him as a healer. Uh, last week, we focused on Jesus as the Word, the Word who became flesh. And as we discover Jesus in these, in these different aspects, we are also hopefully learning and discovering something about ourselves. That, for example, we need a teacher to explain to us the way and the truth and the life. That we are all in need of a healing more profound than we understand. That we all need guidance. That we need the Word of God to orient us in the world. And tonight we're going to talk about Jesus as uh, Messiah, as Ryan said, or Jesus as, as Christ. And most of you will know that when... Somebody talks about Jesus Christ, that Christ is not his last name, right? Uh, his, his earthly parents are not Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Uh, his given name is Jesus, but Christ is a title. Uh, like Professor, Professor Miller, or, or like Coach or like doctor. It's a title that, that denotes a particular identity and a particular vocation. Um, and certainly in the church, very early on, even in the, in the pages of the New Testament, we see as Jesus is recognized by believers as the Christ, uh, and then in common usage through the, through the centuries, yes, it is true that, that it becomes virtually a name. And so we might talk, and I have no complaint about this, we might talk about, I say, do you know Jesus, or do you know Christ, or not? You know, and, and we may use it almost interchangeably as a name, but, but tonight uh, we want to be reminded that it is a title, and we want to unpack a little bit about what does it mean to call Jesus Messiah or, or Christ, and um, so what you notice, I'm using the two words interchangeably, and that's because the word Christ comes from uh, the Greek, Christos, um, and it, that word is a, is a translation of the Hebrew word, the Anglicized version, Messiah, Mashiach, which uh, are, there's, there are two terms for the same thing, and the root meaning of the Hebrew word is, is anointed. The verb form would mean to anoint. And so in the Old Testament era, it was common practice to uh, anoint someone. If, if you were someone was becoming a king, you would anoint them as king. And so one of the four famous examples of this in the Old Testament, uh, at God's direction, the prophet Samuel anointed David, right, the young shepherd boy, anointed David as king. And so both terms, Messiah and Christ, refer, this would be a simple definition, to someone who is anointed by God to rule on his behalf. So the big idea that I want us to think about tonight as we're considering this concept of Jesus as Messiah is that when we discover Jesus, as Christ, when we discover Jesus as Messiah, we find one who is king, is king of all, 
And therefore, he is worthy of our complete worship, our total worship, and our complete trust. So let's jump into this. Ryan uh, read from Matthew. We're going to look at the passage, the parallel passage, a little bit more succinct in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. And uh, as, as Ryan read, uh, Jesus, he's with his disciples. This is, he's already begun his ministry and has begun to develop a reputation. And he went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, yeah, who do people think I am? Who do people say I am? And they told him, well, some think you might be John the Baptist. Uh, others say you're Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He presses them. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter uh, speaks up, and he answers him, and he says, you are the Christ. And then uh, it says that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So what does this answer mean? You are the Christ. Why would that be the answer that Peter would give? If you know the Gospels at all, you know that already by this time in Jesus' earthly ministry, he has been astonishing people with his teaching. Um, he's been not only with the content of what he is saying, but also with the character with which he is speaking, the authority with which he is speaking. This is not like the teachers that they were used to hearing. He has also been amazing people with his miraculous works, as Chris talked about a few weeks ago, with his healings. Uh, but also he's been feeding large crowds of people with a tiny amount of food. Uh, he's been calming a storms on the sea. Uh, uh, he's been announcing uh, the forgiveness of sins. And so unsurprisingly, people are wondering, who is this guy? Or who does this guy think he is uh, as well? Who is this man? And within the Jewish community, which is primarily, I mean, this is where Jesus is. He is he's, he's ministering among the Jewish community they quite naturally began to think about answers to that question uh, according to their own scriptures, according to their own history, and their own experience. And so, for example, some say John the Baptist is who you are. You're like, well, how, why would they say that? Well, John the Baptist was widely regarded to have been a prophet, a man sent from God. But what happened to him, right? Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Judea, had John's head cut off uh, at the request of his lovely wife. Um, and that's recorded in Mark chapter 6. Blame it on the woman. I should not have said that. That's, that's, you know. Herodias, Herod is very troubled about this. But he doesn't. And many people wondered if Perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. So maybe he's John the Baptist. Others, because of a promise in the Old Testament book of Malachi, thought that Jesus might be the reappearance of the great Old Testament prophet Elijah. 
So there are these different ideas floating around. Some say this, some say that. When Jesus presses, Peter says, well, no, you are the Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? Why would Peter choose to use this term to say who he thinks Jesus is? And I think to answer that, we, we need to very quickly uh, think through a little bit of our Old Testament history. God, and I think you know, this is really simple, but God, just recorded back in Genesis 12, called uh, a man, uh, a pagan man, Abram, from Ur of the Chaldees. He made promises to, to Abram that he would, he would make of him a great nation, that he would bring him into a land, and that through him uh, he would be a great blessing, and you all peoples would be blessed. And if you know the story, Abram's descendants made their way because of famine down to Egypt, and they ended up staying there uh, 400 years. Their fortunes there changed even while they multiplied so that they were ultimately oppressed and enslaved there. But God delivered his people using his servant Moses. God delivered his people out of Egypt and uh, brought them in uh, to the land that he promised, as recorded in the book of Joshua. And when they were established in the land, the people asked God for a king. And uh, God patiently grants their request. And so Saul is the first king of Israel, followed by David after Saul is rejected. And then uh, David's son, Solomon. And David, uh, he has this brilliant idea, and once he's, he's, he's got rest on all sides and he's living in his comfortable house, he has the idea that he, that he wants to build a house for God, a temple. Uh, something more glorious, something to replace the tabernacle that was more smaller and more portable that they had been moving about with. And uh, God says to, to David, no, you're, you're not the one who's going to build me a house. But then God continues uh, speaking, and he makes this extraordinary promise to David, which is Second uh, Samuel 7, and it's on the next slide, hopefully. Yeah. And this is what he says and promises to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is a remarkable and very significant promise in terms of the, the, the hope of the Jewish people, uh, but also ultimately the hope of Christians. And it's remarkable because as, you, as you're listening to it, you're thinking, okay, he's talking about Solomon, he's talking about Solomon, David's son. But then it's like, hmm, is he still talking about Solomon? He seems to be speaking beyond Solomon to this idea of the throne being established forever. And so, in fact, what happens is that David's son uh, does build the temple, 
but then what happens? Well, after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is divided between north and south, and ultimately it is judged. The people of God are judged for their failure to walk faithfully with God and uh, in obedience to God, and that judgment involves their conquest by Assyria, it involves their the destruction of the temple, it involves their deportation, their exile into, into Babylon. Catastrophic. And following and during these catastrophic events, the, the people of God remember this promise that God made to his servant David. And they, they remember, wait, God promised to David an enduring kingdom. He promised to, to David a descendant who would sit upon the throne forever. And so you see in the rest of the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, you see this enduring hope and, and, and the, this, this turning and appealing to God in hope for this promised king who would come to restore God's people who would come to reign in righteousness. And that hoped-for king, that hoped-for person is the anointed one, you know, capital A, capital O. That is the Messiah. And so now back to, to, to Jesus talking with his disciples, who do people say I am? Well, unsurprisingly, among the Jews of Jesus' day, there were various ideas about this Messiah, who he would be, certainly, but what, what he would do. But one thing was common is that when people thought in terms of Messiah, they would certainly have thought of a king. And they would certainly have thought of someone who would bring an end to the, 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 this extended period of exile, they would have thought of someone who would restore Israel to its former glory. And they usually understood that, that hope of, of a delivering king, they usually understood it in military and political terms. Israel was under Roman domination. Israel had a, uh, for the purists, uh, uh, among the Jews, that a half-Jewish puppet king in Herod, and they knew that guy's not the Messiah. Um, and so in popular thinking, there's this hope and, and this narrative, and this narrative might go uh, along these lines. The Messiah will come to Jerusalem. The Messiah will fight militarily, will defeat the forces of evil, which included Rome, which also included the, the compromised Jewish authorities, and the Messiah, having defeated the enemies of Israel, will be enthroned as king. And yeah, this, this text up, up on the screen from Mark chapter 11, we see some of the, the popular excitement that developed around Jesus because of what he was doing, because of what he was teaching, because of the, the healings, the miracles that he was doing. People began to wonder, could this be 
the one that we are looking for. And so just about a week before his death, he comes into Jerusalem, uh, is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Why triumphal? Because as he, as he enters uh, the city, he's, he's riding on a donkey. They see an allusion here to the prophet Zechariah. Uh, and they spread their cloaks on the road and leafy branches. And those who went before and those followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look at the language. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people are hoping that the king they have been waiting for has arrived. But there's, there's a problem. Um, the people, as we said, are hoping for a political and a military deliverer. Jesus is going to disappoint them. Uh, and, and there's another problem, that to the religious leaders, Jesus is speaking and behaving in ways that deeply challenge them deeply threatened them, uh, deeply offended them. Jesus might disappoint the people, but he would anger the religious leaders. Uh, think, if you know the New Testament, think of Jesus going into the temple. It's referred to as the cleansing of the temple, overturning the tables. And in that act, he is not only claiming for himself, this is my father's house, he's claiming for himself an identity and an authority that would far surpass any they would have dared to claim for themselves. Uh, but he is also announcing judgment on that house. And for that, they, they thought he was worthy of death. So in their minds, in the religious leaders' minds, Jesus is a blasphemer. He is a pretender. He is someone who claims for himself a royal authority. And in the popular narrative as well, as, as a messiah, as somebody who would come to bring political and military deliverance, he was a complete and utter failure. And the, uh, the, 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 the evidence of that is what happens to him. He is... He is arrested. He is mocked as a king. They put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him, and then they crucify him. And when he was crucified, Pilate orders that a sign be put in three languages, in uh, Aramaic, in Greek, and in Latin, uh, on the cross, and, and this is a way of stating these are the these are the charges against this individual who is being put to death, who's being executed. The charge against this man is that he had the audacity to identify himself as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And of course, the Jews don't like that. That's the way he wrote it. The famous line where uh, Pilate says, "What I have written, I have written. I'm not going to change." It. But there is tremendous irony here. Because Jesus was, in fact, 
the king, the, the hoped for, the waited for king. But the Jews who wanted to crucify him did not think he was their king. Pilate, the, the, the Roman governor, certainly didn't see Jesus as he said, I find no guilt with this guy. But he found no particular threat in him to, to Roman rule and sovereignty. The common people's hopes that the deliverer had come were utterly dashed. And, and to, get, to get a sense of how profoundly Jesus disappointed all the, the, the expectations of Messiah, Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, we preach Messiah. We preach Jesus as the Messiah. Messiah crucified. That's inconceivable. And, the, and, and that is why he says that is a stumbling block to the Jews. Wait, how can the Messiah be crucified? He can't be the Messiah if he's put to death. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Romans. This makes no sense. What kind of, what kind of king is this who's, who's put to death? What sort of king is this? This Jesus is certainly not the hoped-for Messiah. Unless, unless, is it possible that Jesus is a king after all, but, that, but he is a different king, a different kind of king than what they expected? Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I think, really captures this powerfully. You know, he, he talks about the common narrative was that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem, that he would, he would, he would fight a battle, a, a political, military battle, uh, against the forces of evil, that he would gain a throne. Jesus did come to Jerusalem. He did fight a battle against the forces of evil. He did gain a throne. This is, this is the Christian hope, but it was a different battle that Jesus fought, and it was a different throne. Let's just look at a couple of examples where you see this. Colossians chapter 1, Paul's talking about what Jesus did, Jesus the Christ and, and he said, look at the language. He has rescued us. There's the deliverer. From what? From the domain, from the dominion, from the kingdom of darkness. It's not primarily a, a political kingdom. It, no, it's the domain of darkness. And he has transferred us into what? Into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Son he loves. And the nature of that deliverance is a deliverance, what? From sin. The nature of that redemption of being set free is not from a political oppressor, but it is from sin and the guilt of sin. It is from death and the fear of death. Colossians 2, notice again, he's talking about being dead in our sins, but that God made us alive with Christ, forgiving all of our trespasses, erasing the certificate of death, the guilt uh, that was against us. Uh, and opposed to us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And notice he's saying that at the cross, in that death, 
the very death that many would say disqualified Jesus utterly from being the hope for Messiah. No, it is in that suffering on the cross that Jesus is actually engaged in that battle against the forces of evil, and he is disarming the rulers and authorities. He is publicly disgracing them, triumphing over them. And what the New Testament wants us to understand is that when we discover Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, we are recognizing him to be the promised king who would come and deliver his people, who would deliver everyone, not just the Jewish people, everyone who would call upon his name to deliver us from the powers of evil, to deliver us from this present darkness, to deliver us from slavery to sin, to deliver us from fear of death. The king, the king has come. The Deliverer has come, and he is powerful beyond all understanding. He is righteous beyond anything that we have experienced. He is good beyond anything that we can imagine. The, king of, the kingdom of God, the reign of God over the heavens and the earth, is established because the king has come, and he has, he has disarmed, he has triumphed over the forces of evil. He has defeated every enemy. And so in the few minutes that we have remaining, I just want to ask this question, well, okay, what are some takeaways for us as we think about Jesus as this king? Jesus is a different king, is what we're saying. He's a different king than what people expected, and ultimately he's a different king than all of us would expect. The first thing that I want to say is that that means as we've seen looking at these texts, that we do well, that we need to see ourselves, as we think about Jesus as king, we need to see ourselves primarily and firstly as sinners, as rebels against God who are in need of deliverance from our sin, rather than seeing ourselves, for example, as victims of, a pre of, of an oppressive political regime in need of liberation. The Son of Man, Jesus says, talking about himself, and that's another messianic term, he says, he says I, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give my life as a ransom for many, a payment to secure the forgiveness of sins, to secure our redemption through his blood. Why? Because we... That is the deliverance that we need desperately. We need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from death. He's a different king than expected. He's a different king than expected in terms of his character. He's not a tyrant. He's not a despot. He is gentle. He is lowly. He is meek. He calls us not to smash our enemies, but to love them. He is, he is not a king who... Uh, destroys others, but who lays down his life for his friends. And that's, that's amazing. But he is a king. And as king, he is worthy of our worship and of our, of our 
uh, honor. And so Philippians 2, Paul points this out. It is, it is actually, I think it's on the next slide. Um, it is actually, yes, because of Jesus' self-sacrifice for us that Paul says, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every time confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king, and he is worthy of our worship. Jesus is king, and this means that we do have a hope of that, that God's ultimate promises of righteousness and of justice filling the earth, they will be ultimately fulfilled. They're not completely fulfilled in the king's first coming, but we, we have the promise that they will be fulfilled in his second coming. And, and Isaiah the prophet, uh, for example, talks about the throne of David, there it is again, and the kingdom, uh, which Jesus is, is the son of David, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the, is the, the weighted king uh, who will bring peace, who will establish and uphold justice who will bring righteousness. And so we have a hope that those things we long for will finally be established. Because Jesus is king, furthermore, what does this mean about us? This means that our citizenship is first and foremost in the kingdom of God. We need, to, we need to always be remembering that Jesus is our king and that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is, is as he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. There's nothing wrong, for example, with loving your country. But as Christians, remember even the, the meaning of that word Christian, Christ, Christians. <laughs> little, little Christ, Christ's followers, followers of Jesus as our king. As Christians, our ultimate allegiance is, is not and can never be to a particular political state or nation. And nor, nor should we ever imagine that a particular state or nation is, is to be identified with the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of all. He is the savior of all who trust him from every people, every language, every tribe, every nation. And it is to him that we, as Christians, owe our first allegiance. And that also means that if he is our king, we need to follow his precepts and his teachings. You know, going all the way back to when Peter said, you are the Christ. What did Jesus begin to talk about immediately after that? He began to talk about how he was going up to Jerusalem and how he was going to be crucified, who's going to die. And so he immediately begins to talk, not of political conquest, not of military conquest, but of an ignominious death on a cross. And Peter, in his understanding at that moment, was deeply offended by that. No way, Jesus. May it never be. And Jesus knows that he must correct that misunderstanding. And so he rebukes Peter very sharply. And then he says, you know, this is from Matthew's account, this is what he says 
He needs us to understand this. If anyone would come after me, Jesus, Messiah, this is what you need to understand. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come again with the angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each according to what he has done. The way for us, the way for you and me, to acknowledge Jesus as our King and as our Messiah is not to, to, to set our hope, it is not to strive after worldly power, and prestige, uh, or to use worldly weapons to try to advance the kingdom of God. If, if that is how we are trying to save ourselves, he says, you're going to lose your life. The, the, way, the way for us to work out what it means that Jesus is Messiah is, is not imagining that it depends upon us or, or that, that it's up to me to save my life. No, it, it, it involves what? Self-denial, dependence upon him, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And then to follow him, to deny ourselves, to love others sacrificially, to obey his teaching, to live for him, even, even if that makes us look weak or foolish, in the eyes of others, just as they mistook Jesus' kingship, they will misunderstand us as Jesus' followers. But we don't want to be ashamed of our king, because he has the way of life. He is the one who has conquered sin and death. He is the Messiah. Lord, thank you. I pray you will challenge our hearts uh, by what we've been talking about tonight and help us give us understanding and lead us into greater worship and obedience to Jesus our King. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.